Hello wonderful souls and welcome to the Recovery from Fragmented Families podcast. It is your host Mariam bringing you another amazing episode. Now on today's episode I have an incredible guest, an amazing guest actually, right? Her name is Mary Frances O'Connor and Mary she specializes in grief, the grieving brain. She's just written a book. Now, I'll just read you something that is kind of, is written in a book, just very little, just to get the idea where the conversation is going to be heading. Loss of a loved one is something everyone experiences. And for as long as humans have existed, we have struggled when a loved one dies. Now, in your case, who are listening to me, you've gone through ambiguous loss. But as you listen to this conversation, You're going to see there's quite strong parallels between people who are grieving the physical death of a loved ones to those who experience ambiguous loss due to family estrangement. Now, Mary, she is a re-renowned grief expert, neuroscientist and a psychologist, right? And in the book, The Grieving Brain, she shares groundbreaking discoveries about what happens in our brain when we grieve and she kind of, she's kind of providing a new paradigm for understanding love and loss. Mary has dedicated years and, and decades uh, into researching the effects of the grief on the brain and she's actually revealed fascinating new window into one of the most universal experiences of being a human which we all, being part of the human race, means we all going to grieve at some point. And within the book, although she's a scientist, but the book is written in a way that anybody can pick it up and understand it. It's written so well that you have so much takeaways from it. Anyway, I don't want to talk too much. I will let Mary speak for herself. Uh, Guys, don't forget to please join my private Facebook group as well as my private membership site. All the details will be in the show notes below, including Mary's details as well. And again, thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello, wonderful souls, and welcome to today's podcast. Now, on today's podcast, I have an amazing author. And when I tell you what she does, you're going to thank, thank me later. I accept. You're welcome. Um, her name is Mary Frances O'Connor, Associate Professor of Psychology at University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief and Loss Social Stress Glass Lab. Now, Mary has written a book, The Grieving brain is an incredible book i always say whenever we go through life the one thing we could never avoid neither of us is death of a loved one and even so when we go through life we also go through some type of perhaps not physical death but ambiguous type of loss and i think this book will point you in how to deal with these things now mary has been featured in the new york times she's been featured in the newsweek and as of uh, the New York Times Newsweek and the Washington Post, and as of today, I saw she's been featured in a Guardian of the yes. US paper. So I am so happy to have you here, Mary. So Mary, please, you're welcome. It's so good to be here, Miriam. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. The pleasure is mine, honestly. Uh, I'm actually so excited to have you on here because I feel like my listeners could take away so much from your wisdom and what you've written in this book, especially my listeners who have gone through family estrangement. So yeah. Mary, can, um, can you say a little bit about yourself for my listeners who don't know you? 
Sure. I was, you know, trained as a clinical psychologist, but for me, that also involved a lot of neuroscience. Um, so learning neuroimaging. Um, and then uh, I've been a professor since, um, well, gosh, about 2007. Um, and in all of the time, including when I was studying, um, I've just been very fascinated by how the brain can encode and understand our relationships. And then the loss of those relationships um, has just always fascinated me. So you have recently, pub you have recently published a book. Uh, the Grieving Brain. Pandiz, can you tell us a little bit more about this book and how we came to be? Mm. Well, as I talked with people, you know, just regular folks, my neighbors, my friends, people I meet on an airplane, yeah. uh, I realized that we actually have a fair amount of scientific knowledge about grief and that that's really not being transferred to people in their, you know, everyday life. Yeah. And I thought this book might be an opportunity for me to try and write down how I would interpret um, the research that has been done. And then maybe with some applications of ways I've seen people benefit from understanding the scientific side, including yeah. myself, because uh, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was about 13 and then died when I was in my mid-20s. Um, and I had a lot to learn um, about grieving. Um, and then my father more recently, uh, which was a very different grief experience. But all of these things led me to really want people to be able to have information in their hands that they can apply to their own life. Mm. So when you wrote this book, it's not just from your research studies in, I guess, in a lab, let's call it, but it's more of a human experience, your own personal experience as well. It's kind of how the two would fit together, I suppose. Mm. How would a person who happens to know the, the research, yeah. how would they, you know, interpret um, experiences and losses? Yes, definitely. And I think for, and, and again, loss is just one of those things that we are going to face. And yes. I often say when we go through life's challenges, sometimes it's, it's not the challenge itself is that we're ill-equipped yes, to handle the right. challenges, right? And I think sometimes it's just about developing uh, emotional toolboxes you know, like, yes. uh, in our mind that enables us to pivot on the other side when we're going through this, right? Yeah. Well, from your research, why do we grieve? Hmm. This sounds a little bit funny to say, but it really is that we form a bond, right, with someone who we love so much, our sort of one and only, whether that's a spouse or a child or even a best friend. And this is the piece that we lose is the bond. So the reason that we grieve is because in our day to day life, uh, the brain is always trying to predict what's going to happen next, right? It's yes. sort of this predictive organ. And in day-to-day -day life, we assume, we have a strong belief that our loved ones are out there, right? They're always going to be there for us. And we're always going to be there for them. Uh, we wouldn't be able to tolerate leaving each day, leaving home, sending our kids to school, sending our, our partner off to work, if we didn't deeply believe that we would yeah. all be back together again at the end of the day. And, and so this, this makes sense for the yeah. brain to continue predicting that. 
the death of a loved one, thankfully, is a very rare event. And it takes a long time for the brain to really understand, to really learn that it can no longer predict that the person will return or that we might not be able to find them. So it really is a byproduct. Grief is sort of a byproduct of having this loving relationship that usually it makes sense to assume will always be there. Yes, and when the brain cannot find that familiar pattern of the person, I guess, I guess it goes into a little bit of a turmoil then. It does. Grief is very disorienting for a lot of people. And um, people talk about, you know, having real difficulty concentrating and also these intrusive thoughts that come into their mind. And so I know that the brain is doing a lot of extra work to try and understand what's happening and and how to be in the world as this as this different person who's carrying this absence. Yes. Okay, so many of my listeners have experienced family estrangement, right? Yeah. And when I'm reading your book, on page 86, you wrote about your experiences regarding the loss of your mother and what the grieving process was for you, what was like for you due to the complicated relationship you had with her. Are you able to elaborate a little bit more on that? I can. It it is always a little strange for a scientist to talk about their personal life. And so I'm, I'm quite happy to do so because I feel like it gives people a chance to know that I've sort of walked the walk, you know, of what I'm talking about. So when my mother died, um, we had had a very difficult relationship. She had had uh, a lot of depression in her life. And, and I had very much been sort of her primary support, which had its impact on me as well. Um, both doing it sort of all the way growing up and then as a young adult who, you know, is supposed to be making your way in in the world. And so I actually did become quite depressed after my mother died. It wasn't the typical thing we think of with grief, which is wishing that they were back. Mm. In truth, I, I didn't actually wish that she was back, which in and of itself created a lot of guilt Uh, feelings for me, Um, but rather was still trying to understand how I might have helped her and um, what did this mean for, you know, what kind of person I would turn out to be. Um, And so that was, that was some of the difficulty that I in particular faced. Not that my grief was any worse than anyone else's, just that was my experience. Yeah. So, you know, you just mentioned that you it wasn't that you were grieving, you wished her to come back, is that you actually didn't wish her to come back. And a lot of my listeners who have gone through estrangement, especially particularly for those who are estranged from their parents, yeah. they would often have the same sentiment and feeling that way, but at the same time, they would have the same guilt that you're feeling as well. Yeah. Yeah. So how does one begin to overcome that mm. guilt feeling? And alongside the feeling of not wishing them to come, because sometimes you grieve, you wish somebody to come back. But yes. in your case, you, you're not wishing for her to return. That, right. that could, could create a bit of a, a conflict in one's mind, I would imagine. Mm. Well, we know now that, that grief, even 
really severe forms of grief and depression are not actually the same thing. And so many people do very much yearn for for the person to return, Um, even in the sense of just it would give an opportunity for maybe things to turn out differently. Mm. Um, And of course, that that's just never going to be the case now. You've sort of lost all the future possibilities as well as the person themselves. Um, And so I think some of it is really trying to come to an understanding of how to restore a meaningful life given that this is simply true now. And and that's, uh, that's a difficult thing to do. It takes courage. It takes trying a bunch of different things um, to sort of cope with that, your toolkit, as you described it. So I think, it, and, it, and it takes time. It does. I, I think it takes time, which later on, I really want to get into the, the five stages of grief, which they're not really five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. I have to say that just guys, for disclaimer purposes, you're going to learn something new today. Like I did reading this book and it's going to blow you away, but you're going to have to wait just a little bit longer. Just <laughs> So in the book, you spoke about complicated grief which is a term that really resonated with me, right? It's like I've heard of the term, but I, it's the way you articulated complicated grief was just, I was really taken back. Can you mm. tell my listeners how, what is complicated grief? So I like the term complicated grief, although I will just, for, for the purposes of education, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists now call it prolonged grief disorder. But that means the same, the, the phenomena is the same. And yeah. this really has at its heart this yearning, this wanting things to be back like they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that I like the word complicated grief is it reminds me of complications. And so if you think about, say, breaking a bone, say you break your leg, yeah. um, there's a natural healing process, right? It's not that you're doing anything to knit those cells back together. Yeah. You may provide support for the for the leg, you know, put it in a cast and use crutches and so forth. So you might provide support to help with that healing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what can happen is you can have complications in the healing. So you could have an infection uh, or you could have a second break to the bone, a second trauma to yes. the bone. And so I think there are ways in which things can get in the way of our normal sort of response, our normal grieving response. Um, And the reason that that may be useful to know is there can be ways we can intervene for uh, people who are experiencing prolonged grief disorder to help get them back on the healing trajectory. So not to take their grief away, that's not possible, Um, but rather to help them learn some new skills, maybe, uh, as they try to move forward with the grief that they have. Yeah. So with the complicated grief, would you say when someone's grief uh, is in in grief, not because their loved one is dead, but because the relationship has ended, and they're also finding themselves in in a stage of complicated grief, would those techniques work for the person who's having that type of ambiguous loss like family estrangement 
this is a very good question. And I will say from a scientific point of view, we don't actually know. So there have been what we would call randomized clinical trials. These are the regular trials you would do for an intervention. And we've done that with grieving the death of a loved one. So we don't, I I can't honestly tell you in an empirical way what the answer is, but it does make sense that a lot of the same techniques might work because you're still dealing with having a bond and that bond is disrupted. There may be additional pieces that that could be useful, but I think it, it, many of the same skills would apply. Definitely. I mean, even if there's no harm in trying, Right. Um, yes. If you're finding yourself completely paralyzed with these that's right. uh, emotions because your loved one, maybe they've gone missing, right? That's yes. another thing. It's like they've gone missing and you just don't know where they are. Okay. Yeah. So in a book, I was literally blown away learning that there are structural differences in the brain of those who are suffering with complicated grief in comparison to those who are resilient and bereaved. That's another thing that I've learned reading your book, the terminology of resilient bereaved. Yeah. That is something I've never even, you know, it's something I've never even thought of, right? Mm-hmm. And there's literally structural difference. Please, can you expand on this? I can't mm-hmm. even tell you. When I was reading that chapter, if I can pick up the book, I was just underlining. I was just, <laughs> the whole page is underlined. So guys, listen, there's literally structural difference. And I'm going to let Mary explain this. I'm going to stay really quiet because you guys need to take this in. Well, I will say we are in the very, very early stages of understanding this. And so um, I I just want listeners to remember, this is sort of grief on average, right? This doesn't mean that each individual is having this experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But on average, Mm -hmm. when we look at uh, a group of, for example, parents who have lost a child and specifically this is some work out of China where um, with the single child policy uh, when they lose their adult child and it is their only child Um, and when we compare that with a group of individuals who are uh, grieving more resiliently so Mm -hmm. same type of loss uh, Mm -hmm. but these individuals are you know have have found ways to move forward and are sort of functioning and adapted in their lives Mm -hmm. Um, the group who is not doing as well they actually have a smaller hippocampus which is a little tiny piece of the brain um, which has to do with memories and learning Mm -hmm. Um, and so again this is you know one study it doesn't mean that's true for everyone and and it is on average but nonetheless I think as we study grief from a scientific perspective more these are the kinds of interesting pieces that we can learn that might help us in how we approach people who are grieving yeah so in a book you also there was also another group where you discussed that if someone was depressed for example uh, before they started grieving sometimes that depression can continue throughout and much later after if someone was already resilient before the grieving they're likely to be resilient during the grieving process and they're likely to be resilient even after some time they would just kind of get better and then the people that seem to have felt the worst were the ones who were depressed beforehand they were yeah. depressed during and after way some time yeah. so does this go back to that brain mm. region 
it's it's possible and this is you know we call this the chicken and the egg problem mm -hmm. uh so we we aren't sure yet with the research studies that we have yeah. which came first was it that there was something about the brain and yeah. then yeah. they had this loss experience and that made it hard for them to adapt or uh, was their brain perfectly normal and this loss experience happened? And we know things like stress hormones increase um, in most people after the death of a loved one. And so was it something about those stress hormones then that changed an aspect of their brain? Uh, so, so I can't honestly give you the answer yet. Oh, but you don't I know which one you. came first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, first, again, that it made the structural changes to the brain or was the structural to the brain already there in the first place? Yeah. I guess it's, it's an interesting area to leave for, I mean, I guess it's opening for someone to study, right? That's all this Absolutely thing. right. That yes. He lives on hypothesis now. Okay, so yeah. let's look further into this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with that being said, the people who have gone through family estrangement, they're going through ambiguous loss, right? Which yeah. is never really resolved. And right. with that type of loss, and again, it can depend, if you're already depressed before that loss happened, I suppose it can explain why there are some people come across 10 years, 15 years down the line, they're still pretty much yearning and in deep grief because they've been cut off from their family. And I've met other people, they've just managed to get on with their lives. So yeah. I think there's, there's definitely truth into what you're saying, although when you're applying, you're applying it to literally death. Yeah. But I think this can also be applied to in this particular arena as well. Yeah, each are possible. So we know it makes it more difficult when you have a, a mm -hmm. mental health history of something yeah. like depression. Yeah. Um, but it can be the case that uh, previously things seemed pretty normal. Mm -hmm. And now after the event, after the death or the um, estrangement, yeah. um, that, that you develop these symptoms and they don't go away. Either one can be true. Mm. Um, there's some work um, from the Netherlands actually that looks at ambiguous loss yeah. Um, yeah. with individuals who uh, lost, uh, uh, experienced um uh, a flight that went down uh, in the ocean and um, sort of looking at how were people coping because it is not known. Uh, no. There is no final determination of what has happened. No. Um, and so this is a, this is a very ambiguous loss is a very difficult situation. It is. And it's almost like, because there's no closure to it. And again, is there any studies to alleviate some of the difficulties that come with ambiguous loss that I can point my listeners to because some of them are really suffering with this ambigu ambiguity of this loss that they just they need closures they're just not going to get it yeah. yeah and and this reminds me of something that happens um in in all types of loss which is um we create these scenarios in our head, right? Mm -hmm. So even after the death of a loved one, we have sort of this would have, could have, should have, right? I, yes. I should have gotten them to the hospital sooner. The doctor could have run another test or, you know, these sorts of things. So in either case, whether the story is not known, and so yeah. you're sort of making up possibilities, or even when the story is known and you're still yeah. making up possibilities, yes. um, the trouble is in all of those situations, that story sort of has to have what reality is for you now, mm. right? So in the case of the would have, could have, should have, there's an infinite number of possibilities, right? Yeah. And yet the reality is that they're not here. 
And so, right. And, and there's no answer to that question. And so finding ways to, um, uh, a man I know whose son died by suicide, he said, you know, you can't go through the questions to get an answer. You no. have to find a way to go around them. Mm. That's very interesting. Find a yeah. way to go around it. Yes, because yeah. you're not, the direct route is just not going to give you what exactly. you're looking for. Actually, this reminds me, when I was reading a book, there's a lady you described who her uh, husband died. She was by, she was with him by her, his bedside all along in a hospital. And then the one day she leaves to go home to freshen up yeah. is the day that he dies. Do you know, yeah. I, that straight away, I felt the woman is emotions. I start watering because mm-hmm. I was just thinking, could, could you imagine just how bad that she must have felt? And then the fact that she continued to grieve and still cook for him and buy the yeah. shopping for him. And I, I, ah. Oh. I it's couldn't very even, moving. It's yeah. so moving. I was really, really touched by that. So. And, and it is interesting. Um, yeah. I've done some hospice volunteer work and yeah. um, it is actually not uncommon. So I think, you know, it is often the case that a person dies when they are alone in the room. Yeah. And I don't know if, you know, there may be something where it is too difficult to let go while loved ones are around. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it is known exactly if that is true, but we certainly know that it is very common yes. uh, that people die after after loved ones have left the room. And so I, I think because people don't know that, because that's not a typical part of our education about how life and death works. Mm. Um, People often carry a lot of grief, a lot of guilt because of not being present at the moment. Definitely, because we often, I think it goes back to the films that we watch. And I know it might sound a bit far-fetched, but whenever we watch films and someone who's dying in, surrounded by a loved one, they always take that final breath and the loved one is holding their hand. So I guess people believe that it is possible but not realizing that the loved one could be holding on that that you don't see that so as soon as you leave the room they give themselves permission to go because they don't want you to be there right yeah so and I don't think it's a conscious decision I don't mean it that way but simply that you know even if you think about um we're constantly sort of in contact with each other physically as well and and it may even just at some physical level be harder to to let go Mm. when a loved one who has always been there is present yes and suddenly they depart from here okay so I want to get into another thing that you discussed another topic discussed in the book which literally blew my mind away and I don't know if I could say ignorance, ignorant is bliss on this mm-hmm. one, because I had no idea, right? So previously, like many other people, I never questioned the five stages of grief model, which was introduced to us by Elizabeth um, Clubber Ross. I don't know yeah. if I said her surname right. Um, Kubler Ross, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. However, in the book, you demonstrated that the model is incomplete and inaccurate. Yeah. Please tell my listeners why this is. Well, you know, I should say I have a lot of respect for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She was uh, a woman in psychiatry when there were not many women in psychiatry. Uh, And she really took this revolutionary idea that you could talk to people who were terminally ill and ask them what their experience was like. So in this way, she's made just such a tremendous 
a tremendous you know gift to the world and she was using the best technology as it were that we had at the time which was the clinical interview so what she described as as all scientists do when we begin studying something, what she described was accurate. People do feel anger and they do feel depression, both in terms of the loss of their own life um, uh, and also the loss of of other loved ones. Um, The difficulty is that uh, it is not, it, it is a description of individual's grief. It's not really a prescription for how to grieve. So that is to say, these stages do not happen in a linear way where you deal with sort of all of one and then you move into all of the next one, but rather people go in and out. They experience anger at times and not anger at times and more acceptance sometimes and less acceptance others. So from much larger studies, studies of say 1500 people, we know now that um, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't go through uh, that sort of linear format. Yes. And I understand in the distress of acute grief, wanting to believe yeah. there's sort of a set of things that will happen, and then I will feel better, right? Because you so much want to feel better, it's so painful mm. that I can understand the sort of desire to um, to believe in this in this model. Um, but both scientific research suggests that it's not accurate. But more importantly to me, mm-hmm. when people's experience doesn't map on, let's say they never go through a bargaining stage or, uh, you know, they, they experience anger again after having already had feelings of acceptance, they think there's something wrong with them mm. and there's nothing wrong with them, right? Everybody's grief experience is very individual. And although these are examples of things you might feel, you might also feel panic and you might feel guilt. And, and those were not things that sort of made it into the model, yeah. but are true of grief. Definitely. And I feel like when I, the more I read your book and, and how that someone could feel there's something wrong with their grieving process because they're not going through these stages, which can lead them to be in distress. The fact that yeah. they feel there's something because I've reached, I was, I, I had my anger, then I had yeah. acceptance, but I'm back to anger again. Mm-hmm. Is there something wrong with me? So now on top of the grief process, you're already now thinking there's something wrong with you internally. Yes. So I can see why that model needs to be looked at. But I would say when it comes to these things, these models and theories or that have been proposed is that they're subject they're subject to change due to further research yes. and and i and i think even elizabeth would look back at, at the work and be like you know what i really like most scientists appreciate when other scientists come along to build upon the existing knowledge and that's how knowledge is supposed to be it's supposed to cause cascading effect and we learn and we put you know i do a research study i find something and someone be like oh i think you could have done like this let's find something yeah. else you know, mm-hmm. and that's the whole point, you know, other, we've gone so far in terms of our knowledge that we've acquired um, so many years now because people are building on existing knowledge. That's, that's already right. so even with my students, I tell them, you know, part of what I'm teaching you is going to be wrong. It's just I don't know which part yet. Right. That's how science works. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly how science and it should be that way. Right. Yeah. Yes. OK, so guys, I hope you understood that now. So the five stages of grief that we all hang on to and that we all stick to, even for those of us who go for family estrangement, might not necessarily be correct. Right. 
So if you're finding yourself at one point, you've accepted that you're going through some type of loss and then another time you're back to that angry person, that's pretty normal. You're a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another thing that I want to ask you is, um, I had a question here. Many people who have experienced family estrangement and dealing with ambiguous loss, can you elaborate more on ambiguous loss and why it is so hard for individuals suffering from it, which we covered earlier? But I want to touch on that with their work of Strobe and Shoot. Um, mm -hmm. And they introduced a new model of grief. The new model included understanding the restoration stresses. Mm -hmm. Are you able to elaborate this more? And do you think the understanding of this model can be used to navigate ambiguous loss of family estrangement? Yes, I think I think it can. Again, um, it is a it's a model, so there we're still collecting data about it. But it was unique in that you know if you think of sort of your everyday life experience as sort of a big egg, and then inside of that egg there's two smaller eggs, and yes. one of them is you know the stresses that come with the loss or with the estrangement the feelings and the thoughts and and trying to cope with those but there is this other set of stressors this other egg which is how do i live my life now how do i restore a meaningful life and that's you know everything from how do i provide parenting if if i've always had you know we've always had two parents and now i'm the only parent how do i how do i do that or you know simple things like um how do I get the house painted? I, I've never taken care of the house. That was always their role. And, mm. and so trying to figure out, you know, how to do those things. Many of these sort of restoration stressors are just as difficult mm -hmm. for people as dealing with the loss stressors. But I think the real genius of the model for me mm -hmm. is that they talk about how um, bereaved people or people who have ambiguous loss may oscillate back and forth. So they there's this that one moment they're dealing with the loss related stressor and they're trying to cope with the you know feeling. And then in another moment, they're dealing with a restoration stressor and they're trying to figure out, you know, how to get to all their their children's soccer games, you know, uh, whatever the um, whatever it is that they need to be doing now to lead that meaningful life. And so by going back and forth mm -hmm. between these two aspects, uh, it means that you have a more mentally healthy kind of flexible way of reacting to your environment, of moving through your environment. So if there's a, a let's say there's a, a grandparent or a, a grand, grandparents listening, and they've suffered the ambiguous loss of maybe they've, they've been cut out completely by their adult children. And yeah. with that, now they don't see their grandchildren who they were so fond of. So now yeah. they're dealing with that loss. And then they also the stressor of that. And maybe they had a routine of seeing their grandchildren every weekend, or they had a routine of babes or taking them to the park. So yeah. now they've got the weekend and every time they go out, it reminded them of having perhaps their grandchildren or them coming over for the night on the weekends. Now that's not longer there. So I guess understanding that element is like, yes, I miss my adult children, but I also miss this routine that I had with my grandchildren, right? Mm -hmm. And and importantly, and what am I going to do now, right? Mm -hmm. So not even just thinking about the grandchildren per se, but thinking about what would I spend time doing this weekend that would be meaningful? for me, right. 
right? And so not even just the loss part, but really, what am I doing now? How do I want to be in the world? Mm. Um, and, and then trying out those things, right? Uh, not being too avoidant to uh, try doing other things on the weekend or trying to um, show caring for young people in a different way. Mm. It's not going to be the same, but it can potentially be a meaningful way to spend your time yeah so I guess when you when you put that in a way of helping yourself you can stop the illuminating process of ruminating all the time yes this is one possible benefit is yeah. that when we're engaged in meaningful activity when we're doing things with our life that feel um rewarding and yeah. and useful um mm -hmm. it tends to decrease the intensity of yeah. the other negative feelings that we're having oh it's definitely 100 percent. so mary on this set uh, um on my space on my podcast i tend to focus a lot on mindset change as I believe in order to becoming good at processing this thing called life that we've all been thrown into, uh, we need to build resilience and which is often facilitated by our ability to adapt to evolving things around us. Yeah. On page 56, you touched on implicit knowledge, which is that it's thought to operate below the level of consciousness and it influences our beliefs and our actions. Are you able to elaborate more on this implicit knowledge and how does this impact us whenever we're on a quest to change our mindset? Mm. Beliefs are really built up over a long period of time. Um, they're sort of the gist of what you've learned, right? Yeah. And, and so even the belief I was talking about earlier that my loved one is always going to be there. Yeah. You know, when you, when you first start dating someone, you don't think, well, they're always going to be there forever. You know, it yeah. takes a long time to build up that sort of knowledge that they will be there for you, that you can trust them and so forth. Yes. So these types of implicit beliefs, they really are in many ways, sort of below the surface of consciousness, you aren't necessarily, you wouldn't have put that into words per se. Um, and it makes them difficult to change as well. But what leads to changing them in many ways is new experiences. So just as you had to build up the implicit belief in the first place, Mm -hmm. We can have additional learning that happens after when the situation has changed, but we have to be courageous enough to sort of be in experiences, try new things, try new relationships, um, try different ways of reacting um, to the same old things, uh, because these are the way that the brain sort of accumulates knowledge. It accumulates um, how things are now and, and what works uh, in life now. So I think that's, um, it's not that you're changing them directly, but by having experiences, you're coming to understand the world differently. Definitely. So are you essentially speaking about neuroplasticity here? And yes, yeah. yes. And, and the, the part of it that is um, uh, just below conscious awareness, right? So for example, if, if I think, well, you know, I'm not going to go out with friends anymore to dinner because I'm just not going to enjoy it. Yeah. Well, first, we, it turns out we're not always very good predictors of, of what our future emotions will feel like. So oh. 
you may or may not enjoy it. But here's the thing, it may be worth going even if you don't enjoy it. And here's why because we have to build up new habits, new ways of being in the world. Our implicit understanding of what is is the world now has to change. And it's sort of like, if you build up that habit, then it's more likely that at some point you will have good, warm, connecting experiences. But if you haven't tried, even when it didn't work the first few times, by building that up so that the brain feels some trust, like, oh, okay, I can get through this situation. And no, they're not going to say terrible things to me. And, you know, it turns out the food is actually quite tasty. (laughs) As the, as the brain builds more information, then it begins to also send signals that this is a, this is an enjoyable activity that you're a part of now. So it's about repetition, essentially, and then connecting your neurons to allow that to become solid and then uh, allows you to develop a new habit now because I would say the mindset I think in life the one thing I've for sure is going to happen is that life is going to happen to us the good the bad or the ugly is going to come our way and I think it's just about building the mental cushion or -hmm. having that toolbox in our mind to allow us to come from one one place to another because it's going to happen sometime in our own doing sometime in the doing of other people and so for me I feel like we have to become lifelong learners because life is going to be happening that's right exactly and the learning doesn't always it doesn't always work the way we think it will I use this analogy of going to the gym right to to exercise the first time you go to the gym and you come out you're not like suddenly strong no right like the first time you went in you're not just suddenly strong because you went in right you tend to be aching everywhere. Yes, exactly. You have to go back a number of times before you start to notice, oh, I'm stronger than I used to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm going to move on to in chapter six. uh, So I found in chapter six, yearning for love. You spoke Mm -hmm. about yearning for love in chapter six about how our brains identify loved ones so once they have gone whether it's by whether it's by the physical death and my case I'm, I'm looking at from ambiguous loss perspective the example of the animals I think you call it the vol voles uh, yeah was so simple yet so profound right mm-hmm. um and then you delve deeper into the role of how these animals um the way to explain human relationship in terms of the oxytocin and the brain region, uh, fusiform, uh, I think mm-hmm. you call it fusiform gyrus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm gonna let you explain that between oxytocin, uh, the, the vole mm-hmm. and fusiform gyrus, cause they're all connected guys, by the way. There's a reason why if you're finding yourself, you're finding it really difficult to let go or to stop thinking of your loved one who have gone, maybe physically from this earth or maybe ambiguous. So there's a really good reason for that. And reading that chapter just put everything into perspective. So Mary, are you able to explain this? Yeah. And the brain. <laughs> so the reason that we talk about voles, which are these tiny little rodents, you know, that, that yeah. live in, in North America, um, the reason that we talk about them is there's a very, uh, there's one strain of these voles that mate for life. And so yeah. once they have formed this pair bond with their partner, they prefer that vole over any other vole yeah. uh, for the rest of their lives. And they raise pups together and, and so forth. So 
Although, of course, the human brain is different. We have two pounds more brain than these little tiny rodents. There are some pieces about being a social mammal that we can see even in these animals. And uh, so one of those things is you have to figure out, well, how do I recognize that this is my vole, right? Not that other vole that's over there. And one way we do that is there's a very specific part of the human brain called the fusiform gyrus. And, And in that area, we're very attuned to facial uh, recognition. Mm. And we partly know that because sometimes people um, develop brain damage in this area and they're not able to distinguish between people. So so we know that this area is very specific for that. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, uh, the bit about oxytocin, you can think about it this way, that once you have bonded with another person, um, Mm -hmm. once the voles have bonded, the brain really encodes the two of you as one unit, right? right? Yes. And, and so when it does that, when, when that gets encoded that way in the brain, mm-hmm. then you are primed, you're set up for if that other part goes missing, it really feels like part of you is gone. Because you have already bonded in this in this pair. And so we see things like stress hormones go up when when you're separated from Mm. this person that you're bonded to. And one of the ways that uh, that bond is maintained Mm -hmm. is that our brain is constantly sending us chemical signals, you know, dopamine and oxytocin that yes. says, you should go seek out this person, this, mm-hmm. this person that you, that you love, or uh, you should spend time with this person. And so it really is just a whole, every little bit of chemical in its, in its brain arsenal is trying to keep you together. And so when the brain is not yet really understood that this person is gone, mm-hmm. there is still this signaling that says, go find them or um, get their attention so they'll come back to you. And, and I think the intensity of that really can be seen in these neurochemicals. And, and certainly it gives me a lot of compassion for mm-hmm. what people have to deal with as they, uh, as they are t- kind of being um, motivated to seek this person out while at the same time, that's not possible. Mm. So really and surely it is our chemicals in our brain. Yeah. Wow. Imagine that. Yeah. So if someone is sitting there, they think that why can't they just not get past this? You know, everybody says I should get over it. You know, they cut me out. Clearly I should be able to understand, but really and truly there's something in your brain that's your brain is firing, find them, find them, alarm bells are literally going off. Yeah, that's right. Now, I mean, we can come to learn to deal with the alarm bells, right? Uh, So it's not that we're completely um, incapable of figuring out how to cope with those alarm bells. Um, But but there, there is a really strong reaction there that's happening. Yes. So another thing, when I was reading your book, I I can't remember what page you, the way you go through your studies in a glass in terms of how you understand what part of the brain light up when people are in grief, there's literally specific regions in our mind that this takes place, very specific. So I do wonder, maybe I'm just going off probably in an ethical way of thinking here. If someone's having Imagine if there's a way that part of the brain can be targeted by particular therapeutic drugs. 
to maybe numb the area a little bit if someone's really cannot get over am i the only person i can't be the only person who ever thought of about numbing a particular area of the brain just so somebody can be able to live a normal life yeah i mean i have a couple of answers for you one of them is that drug exists it's called alcohol <laughs> right so we do try to numb our brain to sort of that's true. You're right. Yeah. Right. So we do try to numb ourselves to try not to be in the midst of that painful experience. Yeah. But yeah. the trouble is that doesn't really work in the long term, does it? I mean, yeah, first of all, it has a lot of side effects. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it makes it hard to drive a car and, and all sorts of other things. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the reasons is that we still at the end of the day sort of have to deal with the reality, yeah. you know, yeah. The other piece, which is, I think, more what you were actually getting at, is, is whether there might be drug treatments that would be, um, that would help with this sort of natural process. Yeah. Um, and we don't have evidence for those at this yeah. time. Even antidepressants, we know now, while they will work for depression when someone is bereaved, they don't actually change that yearning. Um, I mean, psychotherapy really is our best intervention now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason is you really are changing those, you know, psychotherapy, you change those neural connections as well, right? Yeah. So you really can create learning through that. I would say there, you know, there's some work on, um, say, for example, we know oxytocin is involved in grief. Yeah. And so there has been this suggestion that, well, couldn't we give people oxytocin? Wouldn't they feel better? But here's the thing. Oxytocin works because, well, the most common actually reason that we have oxytocin is actually for nursing mothers. So yeah. when your oxytocin level changes, right, when the child is hungry, then it enables you to nurse. Um, and so oxytocin goes up and down all through the day. But the important part is it's very responsive to mm. this one other individual, right? You don't want to be you don't want to be available for nursing all the time. You want it to be on a schedule that works with the child, right? Yes. So oxytocin, for whatever reason, is very attuned to the other person, right? This is true yes. in, in romantic couples as well. And so the trouble that I see with giving oxytocin is if you just take it in the morning, right? And then you go about your day, that seems pretty random, right? That's not associated with a very specific other individual, the way the oxytocin system is built to be. And the additional problem that I see is, think of all the times you might be bringing that deceased loved one to mind, right? Yeah. So if you're taking oxytocin, is it actually motivating you to connect with other people? Or is it just reinforcing your desire to connect with this person in I your see. mind? Right. I, yeah, you're right. It, it makes yeah. sense, actually. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can see why it's a bit of a double-edged sword. In the one way, you're feeling good, but in another way, you it's not really solving out the yearning because the person is not really there yeah. which actually got me thinking I'm a mother of three and mm. I've been fortunate enough to breastfeed all my children yeah. with my youngest I breastfed her for two years yeah. and you're right about this bondingness that we have because even when I was away from her I would yeah. know that she needs my body would tell me when she needs yes. feeding and often when I call, I'm like, is she crying? They'll be like, yes, she is, because yeah. my body will tell me. So I felt like, especially when my daughter's breastfeeding, 
I felt like we were tethered together emotionally. Yes. And this goes for my sons as well. Yes. I happened to prolong breastfeeding for quite some time until I normally go back to work. That's when I normally stop. So I definitely don't know what that is. And even just being intuitively being connected to your young infants and knowing their needs, whether they is to whether they're hot or whether they're colder, just knowing those things, I feel like it is that hormone that binds you together. Because often people, um, and I, there'll be time with our visitors in the sitting room, and they'll be like, oh, she's awake. They'll be like, I can't hear that. What do you mean? I'm like, no, no, no I need to go into it. She's awake. They'll be like, how did you know? You just know. So I guess you're right. So when it's not with the, our young infant children and babies, we can't attach that to our significant others. And I think sometimes that's why we, when you're with someone for a long time, you tend to synchronize in your thinking. Yeah. Could it be that? Is that the oxytocin responsible yes. for that? Ah. Yes, I think I think that's exactly right. We become part of a unit, right? Like we are together, a we, which is different from a you and a me, right? The we part is really encoded in, in our hormones, in our reactions, in our in our brain. So basically the people that we love, they're encoding in our brain, they're encoding in our hormones. As I said in the book, they're encoding in our epigenetics. Mm-hmm. So if you're struggling because somebody's walked out of your life and you literally think you're going crazy, you ain't. That's right. You're not. These people- It's a natural response. It's a natural response. They're literally in your brain's mind. They're part of your DNA. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. So I I got a whole new level of understanding with reading this book, guys. And I suggest everybody to get the books. What is one piece of advice uh, you would give to someone listening right now who's struggling with the loss? Mm. I think it can be about trying to see it not just as your grief, Mm -hmm. but as the fact that as human beings, grief is part of our it's part of our legacy, right? And what that means is that you've sort of walked through this door and there are all these other people who've walked through that door as well. And they're your ancestors, they're your family, they're your friends, they're your authors and your counselors and your pastor, right? There are other people who have walked through this door as well. And if you can find a way to try and connect with them, not because your grief will be the same, it's as different as every relationship, but the understanding of that suffering is something that some people are able to tolerate sitting with you and, mm. and, you know, letting you experience it. And also, you know, sort of encouraging you to sort of do the good things in your life as well. So I really try to connect, try to reach out as difficult as that is. Yeah. Because I think it can make a, a whole difference in your life between remaining emotionally stuck to, I guess, finding new adventures, finding new things to do that will bring you happiness. That's right. So Mary, where can my listeners find you? Uh, so at maryfrancisoconnor.com yeah. and uh, on Twitter at Dr. MFO, um, yeah. you'll find me there. Okay, so you don't have like Instagram or anything like that? I'm, I'm not on Instagram. I'm too old. <laughs> no, you're not. Oh my goodness. You're not too old. Everybody's on Instagram. I, I remember saying the same thing when um, I, I got on TikTok no long ago. And I remember feeling like I'm a bit too old to be on TikTok. And then I, I started seeing other people my age on TikTok. I was like, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> but there's other, I'm just not, I don't even know how Snapchat works. Right. <laughs> Is that mommy needs Snapchat? I'm like, 
uh, uh, I can't deal with another. This is too much for me. At this, <laughs> that's how I feel. <laughs> no, I completely understand. So, guys, I'm gonna put Mary's details in the show notes below, and your book is available and actually on all major. It is. Sellers. It's on Amazon. Um, yes. Barnes and Noble as well in US. Yes, Barnes and Noble. Um, anywhere books are sold in bookstores as well. It is released in the UK um, uh, on March seventeenth. So very yes, yeah. But you yes. can already get it on, I think, Kindle yes. and Audible. I've got mine. Yes. That's right. And guys, honestly, if I have to open each page, you can see I've underlined so many pages because it's so so good. There's just so many places I've, I'm reading. I'm like, okay, that's good, that's good. And there's so many questions I would want to ask you in the book. But if I have my way, I'll probably ask each chapter as it goes along. But uh, you guys have to get the book to read it for yourself. And the one thing I would say is it's okay to have in scientific knowledge, but it's such a rare thing to have someone break down scientific knowledge into, into layman's terms in a way that anybody can pick up the book and understand. You come away, feel like you've learned something new. So 100% get the book. Even if you're not grieving now, say that the physical death of a loved one you're going through ambiguous loss and at some point in our life we're going to grieve of somebody's yeah. somebody dying so definitely go ahead but mary thank you thank you so much uh thank you so much for having me miriam this was a good conversation that is all for today is episode i told you guys you're gonna love this conversation just as much as i do i actually really love recording this this episode because i felt like i learned so many new things there's so many takeaways one of the things that really blew my mind even when before interviewing mary just when you read in the book it was about the five stages of grief then being incomplete and it made so much sense when mary explained why right but my other takeaways is that we are going to grief or suffer with grief as a result of the death of a loved one at some point in our life that's unavoidable you know what it is because death is part of life is is something that we are going to go through grief is a natural process my other takeaways is that there are structural differences between people who are resilient bereaved and to people who are highly depressed they're they're literally brain structure differences that determine how long you grieve for and how how long it's going to impact you. I was really blown away by understanding that. There's just so many takeaways on this episode and I would just highly recommend you get the book. All Mary's details will be in the show notes below. Please rate uh, the podcast and I thank you so much for listening this far. You know, if you learn anything from this episode and you've got any takeaway, please message me. Just let me know. You know, drop a little comment just to say, hey, I listened to this episode and I learned something different. Anyway, that is all, guys. I can't wait to catch up with you guys tomorrow on another little mini episode. Well, be a mini episode, not a full one. But um, yes, it's just been amazing. And again, I'd just like to extend the deepest gratitude to Mary because, I mean, yeah, she's just, I love her enthusiasm even during the recording. And that was incredible. Guys, don't forget to get the book. All the details will be in the show notes. And also don't forget to join my private Facebook group as well as my private membership site. That is all and I'll catch up with you guys soon. Take care. Bye.